Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. Joshua. I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. And this is Get Off My World, a Doctor Who podcast dedicated to the classic Doctor Who series. And occasionally we will talk about that other spinoff new series, too. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take you through five rounds, wrap it, and get down to what we like best about our favorite show and some of the things that don't always work. But we like to start every podcast with a round we call Temporal Grace, in which we say something positive and happy uh, in our recent experience with Doctor Who. Pat? Yeah, I've got a double-barreled Doctor Who reference thing going on. Uh, I have not seen the Batman Lego movie yet, but it's uh, come out uh, as we're recording this, I think, about a few days ago. Yeah. Uh, I know know who've seen it have really enjoyed it. Yeah, I look forward to seeing it. Mm -hmm. I liked the old Lego movie. The old Lego movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, was it about a year ago? Yeah, it was sometime. Everything is awesome. And the Neolithic sometime, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, I, I bring it up because apparently the Daleks appear in it, although they are called... British robots in the movie, presumably for for obscure rights issues. Uh, so I've seen some things online where Batman is fighting uh, British robots. So obviously, I love that. But then also, my wife and I have been watching the TV series Leverage from a few years back because I have a boy crush on Timothy Hutton, as we all know. Uh, so in season four, episode 17, the character Parker speculates about Nate's dad using a time machine to get out of a particular sticky situation. And so there's a flashback in her memory, and we hear a brief, very close approximation of the Doctor Who theme. Uh, and then when they cut back to the, to the regular time frame, she's talking to Hardison, uh, Eldris Burgess, and she says, well, why are you wearing a bow tie? And he says, because bow ties are cool, <laughs> which yeah, is a little bit cheesy, uh, but it's an obvious buried reference to Doctor Who. And I, I loved it for all of those reasons. Kelvin? Recently, I ran into some weird bit of Doctor Who trivia, and um, I've seen it listed more than one place, although a lot of people insist it it's a hoax or, you know, a load of bollocks or something. But supposedly, Bob Dylan permitted Doctor Who to use the rights to use the rights to one of his songs for Silver Nemesis. <laughs> but they wound up not doing it. I, again, a lot of people are really skeptical this happened. You know, I, I, and I'm not the hugest Dylan fan in the world, but I'm honest to God trying to figure out what Bob Dylan song would fit in Silver Nemesis. So they didn't tell you what Bob no, Dylan no. song? No, no. Oh. It's like whatever song you want to use, you can you can use it. And they were like, oh, great, thanks. And then they just didn't use one. It really doesn't matter whether it's true or not. That's yeah. just a great story. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be Visions of Johanna. 
Lay Lady Lay. I'm sure it wouldn't be Lay Lady Lay. I can't imagine positively Fourth Street or Rainy Day Women very well. Um, There's the famous jazz guy who's in Silver Nemesis. What's his name? He's playing the saxophone. Am I getting Silver Nemesis mixed up with another Seventh Doctor's? Courtney Pine. Courtney Pine appears in Silver Nemesis. He's the guy there on the lawn, Mm -hmm. and he's playing the saxophone, and Sylvester McCoy says, that's the kind of jazz I like, straight blow. (laughs) Which, yeah. But... Wait, uh, doesn't Silver Nemesis end with them, like, in the... uh, the 17th century or something, and the 17th century musicians are like, well, we don't know anything of this jazz you speak of, Doctor, but here's a piece, and they that play, is, like, lutes or something. That is uh, unfortunately true, what you, what you just <laughs> said. Uh, I had no idea about the Bob Dylan connection. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what what song of Bob Dylan's could possibly fit into Doctor Who? Maybe they decided, like, Dylan just didn't make sense, but, well, we'll get this jazz guy. I, I don't know. I now want to see a bunch of supercuts with Bob Dylan music under uh, <laughs> Sylvester McCoy running around. Well, my temporal grace this week involves my son. Now, a little backstory here. When we first started this podcast, I suggested to Pat and Kelvin that we uh, keep this uh, a clean rating uh, as a podcast uh, because I had read that podcasts without language warnings get more downloads. I also think that you know if you're talking about a tv show that is for all ages that your podcast should be generally something that you sure. could have in, in the car or whatever and have your kids in the background and they wouldn't they wouldn't care if this was a deadwood podcast then all bets are <laughs> off right um and so occasionally when we let a, a curse word slip we would put in a sound effect and over the two plus years of this podcast i've experimented a lot i've had random noises far too loud of noises uh and we <laughs> Finally settled on a cloister bell sound because I was like, oh, it's a it's a warning swears. And so a couple days ago, my son came to me and said, I I really don't like your cloister bell uh, (laughs) for these swears. He didn't think it was edited efficiently. And so he actually emailed me what he thought was a a cleaner cloister bell bleep. And so in order to test this, I just wanted to say, Aaron, thanks a lot (laughs) for that cloister bell, because we're going to use it a lot on this podcast. So for our next round, our special topics, Dalek, I have a question, you guys. All right. So we know... Uh, unfortunately, now that uh, Peter Capaldi is going is stepping down as the Doctor this next yeah. year, yeah. I know it's it's very depressing. I don't uh, I don't like it either. Uh, we also know that Chris Chibnall is taking over for the season after that, so all bets are off. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we we've talked uh, many times about who we want to cast as the Doctor, that, those sorts of things, but what? If we had world enough in time, what would we want as a new formula for Doctor Who? Chris Chibnall is coming in. There is going to be a new Doctor. There may or may not be a new companion. All bets are off. What would we want new? What would we like to see different in how Doctor Who is approached. Because one of the things that the, the, the show has done is reinvel- reinvent itself 
frequently and often and very radically. So what, if we were in charge, would we do? That is a huge question. Well, I'll start with just like a few uh, seed things. Um, I would like, for example, to see non-Earthling companions Mm -hmm. or companions from different time frames. Uh, Russell T. established the kind of contemporary Earth young woman companion, which there's nothing wrong with. But I liked a lot of the old uh, Who series things where you've got Leela or Steven or just people from the outer reaches of the galaxy or robots like Canine or Chameleon, that kind of thing. I would like to really stretch the possibilities of what a companion could be just as a start. I agree with you about the companions, but my first thought is tone stuff where we could Find ways to better integrate the comedy and drama, I guess. And, and I'm, I'm being nitpicky now, but I, I really enjoy in the classic series how you could not take yourself too seriously on the one end, but you could also make jokes and quips, but it's not a, a wacky comedy episode. And I feel like sometimes the new series is really grapple with that. It's one thing that I think Moffat's pretty good about keeping a sense of humor mm-hmm. while uh, while committing to the actual melodrama of it. Um, but I guess I, w- I would like to see even more of that. I guess it's not a real like reboot of the formula. Um, no, I think that's right, though. It's a tonal approach that you would prefer to see. I agree with the tone thing. I would like to see romance either de-emphasized or done well or or not done in that strange fairy tale way. Stephen Moffat always seems to want to do it. Where, um, Well, I'm thinking of the return of Dr. Mysterio, where it's like, the guy who's been in love with this woman his whole life and is like her, her nanny and stuff. And then finally like, Oh, I've been in love with you my whole life. And they're like, Oh, okay. And then they have a relationship and I'm like, that doesn't work. Oh, that's how I met my wife. <laughs> I was a superhero and she, well, <laughs> but I mean, it was the TMI. Same. I understand. It, it was the same way with Amy and Rory. I liked Amy and Rory. Uh, it just the story of their relationship was weird, though. I agree with you. I think that there's an unusual amount of fiction in the romantic relationships yeah. in both the RTD and Stephen Moffat eras. I don't know if that's what I look for in Doctor Who, uh, like a realistic Jane Austen-level well, romance. But No, I mean, you know, but it, it, it really seems like a, not that I've read any, but... You know, so I'm probably off base here on some level, but it, it really seems like a, like a Harlequin romance kind of romance. You know, just some weird cliche of how relationships work. I think you're probably right about that. I mean, it yeah. it's the easy sort of channel of romance. Right? Yeah. When, when it's just an element of a larger story. Yeah. If you're writing a book that's, you know, about um, two people falling in love, then you can do the nuance, yeah, yeah. but uh, but Doctor Who has never been about that substantially. No. So would you prefer to see, then, an entire season of the Doctor falling in love no. with a... No? No. <laughs> He's done. You he lost him. No, 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 no. Um, uh, I do kind of like this idea of the Doctor being lonely and trying not to be lonely. 
I think I've brought, mentioned this before, like, but I'm, I'm not sure how to portray that without it reading like romantic interest. Like he wants companionship, but not romantic companionship. Yeah. Like, and I don't, I don't quite know what that would look like. Is it like, oh, let's just go to the pub, you know, or something, you know, or that's the Garth Ennis solution. Yeah, yeah. yeah that would be if if Garth Ennis was showrunner, <laughs> the tar, the tar doesn't just be like a big pub. I think I would like to see them take just more risks. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the show, when a show has been on as long as New Who now has, uh, over 10 years, uh, ratings have dipped a little, but that's just, I think, mainly because it's just been on for a long time. I think it's a great time to really try something new. I know from a big wigs at the BBC point of view, it's like, let's get it back to the old formula, but that, that never works. You can never catch lightning in a bottle twice. I think it's a great time to just try something completely different. Maybe just experiment once where there's no serial elements mm-hmm. at all. It's just a season of adventures. There might be some higher stakes in your season finale that is that might really draw somebody, a return character or something, but it's not building up to something all the way through. Or conversely, if they're going to do serialized stuff, commit the other way and really go like a full-blown 12-part, well, really if, interconnected If Chris Chibnall does this American-style writer's room thing, uh, it, it could be a much more you know seriously serialized kind of um season. Yeah, I, ju- I just hope they don't feel the need. There have been some rumors online, and I don't know what the how valid those rumors are of the BBC wanting them to go back to a young dashing doctor and a young female companion. I really think if they want to r- revitalize this, they should let Chibnall do something different, even if it sounds preposterous. I think even if I read the, about something that sounded terrible to me but it was really different from what the new series had done so far. I would be, I would be more excited. I would go like, well, at least it's something really different. I'm, I would bet the farm that it is going to be like the young nerd hunk kind of doctor again. Yeah, I, I feel like Moffat went in a different direction by casting Peter Capaldi, and I love Peter Capaldi, but I felt like he was continually either apologizing or compensating for that casting choice mm-hmm. by having to make it even more relational than the series has ever been or to really constantly acknowledge his age. And I guess whatever Chibnall does, he should model it more after the 11th hour as in like, I'm going to just, this is almost like a pilot for a new series as opposed to Capaldi's first episode. I'm blanking on the name right now. Um, where it felt like it felt really aware that we're making a change and kind of, I'm, I'm sorry, this is going to be different. Don't be weirded out. Just blast out of the starting yeah, I, gate brand I, new. I agree. I think it, it, it gets weighed down by the expectations of the new series. Deep Breath was uh, particularly gruesome in that regard, where the half of the time seemed to be Clara talking to the Silurian lady about her feelings toward uh, Peter Capaldi. And I... You know, what I liked about the classic series, and not to belabor the point, is the lightness of it. It's where now we're at another star system, now we're dealing with completely different problems, and it doesn't have to have any relationship to contemporary Earth, uh, at least at the best of times. They frequently did bring it back to Earth concerns, but in the episode that we're going to talk about later on, Planet of Planet of Evil, there's nothing related to contemporary humans at all, and I would like to see more of that 
science fictional expansion. I don't mind the new who idea of we're going to have relationships going on, but you I know. don't I don't want us to always t- go back and visit Rose's family. Or well, yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's open it up. Let's open it up to the universe. Then again, the last time they really tried to like go whole hog and really have a complete break and like yes this is an entirely new doctor the, the, I I mean I could be wrong about this when last time they tried that we got the twin dilemma that was a tough start to well, a, a new era well, I, classic, it really was in the classic who they were always they always had to detach by degrees because they usually had scripts that were written for I'm sure Robot was written for John Pertwee and, mm-hmm. until Tom was there to, to do it. So there's always sort of a, a number of stages by which they go into a, 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 a different type of Doctor Who. But, you know, so if we're looking at what we want from the new series, I don't care about story arcs or not story arcs. I'm okay with either one of those. Mm-hmm. But I want things that detach from the history that detach from Earth, contemporary Earth concerns, and really just go off. I want the expanse or something. I want n- not normal 21st century Earth stuff. That's where I'm planting my flag, Kelvin. <laughs> it's a good place to plant it. I'm going to help you with your flag. Don't get weird out. <laughs> touch, we'll be, my, touch, real, my, touch my flag. Josh. We're like the statue of the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima. <laughs> All three of us are like, yeah. I'm planting that flag. <laughs> three middle-aged cranky nerds planting a flag together. Okay, next up, the randomizer <laughs> in its wondrous <laughs> random wisdom has selected for us Planet of Evil, another fourth Doctor story with Sarah Jane Smith, and I think this is from... Is it from the first season of... Second. Second season of The Fourth Doctor. Uh, and 1975. 1975, and it's a far future story, uh, and I just want to start out by saying I've always really loved this story. It was always one of my favorites as a kid, and it's th- I think it still holds up a lot. Well, I'm not going to bury the lead, Kelvin. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 100% behind you mm-hmm. on this. This is one of the ones... Uh, that is so deeply part of my childhood. Yeah. Also, it's not one of the ones that I see all the time. Like, I've seen Revenge of the Cybermen two or three times the uh, as frequently as I've seen mm. Planet of Evil or Genesis of the Daleks. This is great, and it was great to revisit it mm. for for this podcast. Yeah, it's a really good story, and I won't bear the lead either. I think this would be an example I would pull out to, to make an argument that the Hinchcliffe era is one of the best, if not the best era of Doctor Who, partly because I think even on the page, there's some nice bits in this story, but it's a pretty standard story. It doesn't have any show-off bits in the script. And this is what this era does with, with a pretty standard but interesting story. Yeah. When you compare other eras... Uh, like the, the 80s or even the 60s when they're kind of just doing a, a, a run-of-the-mill, straightforward sci-fi story. That's usually when they go to pot, right? This is an era where they seem to just elevate everything. It's uh, Sometimes you hear criticisms of this era because it's, oh, it's Bob Holmes and Philip Hinchcliffe just ripping off 
this story or that story, uh, Frankenstein for Brain of Morbius or whatever. And so this planet of evil is... And it really is. It really is. Forbidden planet. It is totally forbidden planet. With a little bit of Dr. Jekyll mm-hmm. and Mr. Hyde in there. Yeah, uh, and weird stuff about antimatter that, to be honest, doesn't seem to behave like what I, I believe antimatter actually behaves like. Yeah, it's a little wobbly. Uh, the, the color-changing crystals is like an odd thing. I don't know what that's there for. But that's all nitpicky. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very nitpicky. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things that they recognized in this era is that, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and adapt earlier stories like Forbidden Planet, which is itself based on The Tempest, uh, and uh, let's take those things and make them Doctor Who-y. And so here we've got all of that. The, the Caliban creature, the creature from the id, from Forbidden Planet, the, the, the invisible thing that we have going on right now. And let's put it in this wonderful Doctor Who context. And if we do it well enough, then it's wonderful. We talked about Deadly Assassin last episode with Jeff Tidball. And so you could criticize some of the Matrix scenes for being, oh, that's just a ripoff of North by Northwest, where the, the, the plane is coming in. Or this is just a ripoff of Forbidden Planet. But if the kids who watch this are anything like me, this is the first time they've seen that. So I saw Deadly Assassin before I saw North by Northwest. I saw Planet of Evil before I saw Forbidden Planet. And so, sure, why don't you just rip it off and take the good parts and really take that emotional content and make a good story out of it? Yeah. I see no problem with it. Especially, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's a great kind of gateway to this other literature. And that's constantly, as a child, what Doctor Who did for me concepts, books, stories, and then you see them in the later parts of your life and you have those aha Doctor Who moments. I remember my mind really being blown by this being set 35,000 years in the future. For some reason, that was like a a harder to grasp time frame than like a million years in the future. And And the the whole weirdness of like, you are on the edge of the universe. Yeah, there's nothing beyond it. There's literally nothing beyond this planet. And it's like so... And it's like literally the boundaries between universes have gotten thin there, and there's like a weird pit of nothing on this planet. That's a gateway to an Annie Manor universe, and I, that that all that just blew my mind all to hell when I was a kid. I just it it's very supernatural, yeah. right? It's like we're at the end of everything, yeah. And here things are they're distorting human beings that we know they're. There are weird, invisible things that come out and kill us. There's a huge black pit of unreflective substance that you most people fall in and die, but uh, maybe if you're the doctor, you can come out and survive. I like the uncanniness mm-hmm. of it. The antimatter creature is... I, I remember really it kind of winging me out. Which which, which version of the various antimatter creatures? Uh, the... The outline, the, the red the outline. The outline of the thing where its yeah. mouth is just kind of going, eh, eh, you know, like, that was really creepy to me. This whole episode is really well realized. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is low-budget 70s science fiction, but it is the very best low-budget 70s science fiction. I think realizing the monster in that way is really effective. The spaceship 
uh, model work is really effective. It's, yeah, it's surprisingly good. Uh, model the work. interior design is really great because they intentionally make the ship really kind of industrial. Very Blake Seven. Yeah, yeah, it feels like a real practical spaceship. For some reason, the jungle oh, set yes. of the planet. Yes, yes, is yes. really cool. Even though, I mean, it's wow. Is it ever obvious it's a set? Somehow that made it seem more unnatural. This is a great, maybe the best Doctor Who example of how artificiality can really work. Because yeah. that this is one of the best stage sets that they ever did. That multicolored jungle with a beautiful lighting design. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's even good in the videotaped parts, but they make a point of doing some film of it, so they you see some filmed versions of people walking through it, and then it gives an even more depth, depth of character. There, there's a shot at uh, the end of episode two that's repeated at the uh, top of episode three, where Tom is just walking straight mm -hmm. toward the camera, which is, I think, my wife Carrie's favorite shot in all of Doctor Who, because it's so moody and wonderful, and it's on film, and that's uh, that's important for the look of it. I'm not sure, but is there any other time they used film in a studio setting outside of Spearhead from Space? Yeah, I can't think of a comparable example. I think Sorensen does a really the guy who plays Sorensen does a really good job with the whole Jekyll and Hyde yeah. thing. I mean, that could have been really laughable, but I think he does a, a very good job with that. No, he's really good. He's a complex antagonist. He's not really a villain. Because no. He doesn't have villainous tendencies, but he's got the Doctor Jekyll thing. Uh, despite the you know, despite the title being Planet of Evil, is there really a villain in this? I mean, it's like yeah, the antimatter. The, the, the anti planet seems okay. The antimatter beings don't really seem to be like we want you dead. It's just like please go away and quit taking our stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. <laughs> those are our shiny rocks. <laughs> sets up for a really interesting conflict that's like in, instead of fighting something you're like where's the antimatter keep coming from we keep telling them we're not going to take any more antimatter and it keeps showing up on the ship well it doesn't you know and it, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily uh like a force of will thing by the antimatter creatures it's it, you know like it's they're not making this happen it's just sort of the weird physics of trying to take a substance that isn't of your mm -hmm. universe like, like that's so against the natural laws of things that, like, you can't get out of the orbit of the planet because it's yeah, the, some kind of rubber band slingshot yet there, force thing happening. And there is a suggestion that there's some decisions being made by this antimatter entity because mm -hmm. one of my favorite things about this, and it's very much not the usual way. Hinchcliffe era stories go is that Sorensen actually lives at the end. Yeah. yeah. And I forget that every time I watch this because so much Doctor Who is like, oh, scientist did bad thing. He's dead. And then the, the and doctor just the gives formula. him this throwaway idea that like solves his problem. Like, you just just use the kinetic motion of planets for, for energy <laughs> source. <You're> like, whoa! <laughs> but the doctor implies that the animator creature made the choice to return a mm. restored version of Sorensen. Mm -hmm to them, which I, I thought was a nice moment. There's also that great scene, um, and I think it's connected to that moment at the end where Sorensen lives. They give him redemption because he, as the scientist, makes the right choice. He takes the responsibility. The doctor gives him the lecture about, mm -hmm. like, you know, this is the cost 
of meddling or investigating, however you want to characterize it, in these uh, areas, you got to take responsibility for it. So he's about to, Sorensen is about to launch himself out into space and reaches for the lever and he's going to do it. And there's a great directing shot where we just see his hand transform on the lever. I mean, like so close. (laughs) So he meant to do the right thing and uncharacteristically for Doctor Who is rewarded. (laughs) <laughs> for his intention. Yeah, absolutely uncharacteristic because uh, always those scientists that go a little bit further, they're, they're destroyed. Whether they repent at the end, whether mm-hmm. they're proven to be correct or not, they're always killed. This is unusual. This is a little bit of a fairy tale, a little mm-hmm. fairy tale where he is delivered again from the pit. He's Joseph coming out of the pit again yeah. the, uh, to be redeemed. And I like it because it's unusual for Doctor Who. As much as we talk about Doctor Who as being a children's show, it's usually pitiless in that way. <laughs> you you go across a certain line and you are destroyed. But here, Sorensen, how many people did he kill? How many deaths was he responsible for? But he's delivered up again from the pit and he is redeemed. That's spiritually yes. <laughs> spiritually redemptive very strange for doctor who especially in a in a story this dark oh and speaking of spiritual matters i love the scene where uh, the one crew member has to look up where the dead crew member of what the dom- denomination oh i love that <laughs> oh my like, god we have to play the last rites but we don't have to listen to him or actually, when he pulls pulls up the the denomination, it's like something like you know, Western Orthodox. Or yeah, something. And, he, and he even mm-hmm. says one of those. <laughs> and I it's guess. a great piece of writing because there's a little moment of satire, a little moment of levity, but it also is there to set up the cliffhanger for that episode when it looks like the Doctor and Sarah are gonna be shot out those tubes too. Yeah, so I, I love it when it's doing double work like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it's also you know in a science fictional way makes a lot of sense in in terms of we've we've gone so far that we we have established that this person is of this particular denomination and we respect them because we respect that person, but. We're not going to waste any of our time by <laughs> pretending to care about their bullshit. So we're going to <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna play their last rites in their coffin as they go yeah, out. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a nice scene. Many wonderful things about Planet of Evil. I could actually go on about Planet oh, of yeah. Evil for like a whole lot of time. Um, it's nice to see a black actor yes. in a non embarrassing role. I, I looked him up. This is the Gambian-born actor Louis Mahoney playing Ponty mm-hmm. here. Uh, he is also an anti-racist activist, still alive, co-founder of the Black Theater Workshop in 1976, and he also comes back in Blink. Is he the older guy in Blink? Yes, he is. Wow. Oh, nice. That's cool. I know, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, also, once again, uh, future humans all suck terribly. They're awful. <laughs> Salamar is horrible. They torture people. Yeah. Um, they're always creepy in the stories that they appear in. Even the doctor hates them. He says at one point, it's tempting to let them destroy themselves. But <laughs> the, the casting is great. Uh, Vyshinsky as the older guy and yeah. the baby-faced actor playing the controller is a wonderful, weird unbalanced power structure because Vashinsky is eventually starting to exert moral authority over the well, commander. Well, Salomar has no real authority to speak of. He's only, he, he just, he's just shouty. 
Yep. He has like no real way to get anyone to respect him. And he is also smart yeah. enough to know that Vyshinsky knows better than him yeah. for the most part. So for the most part, he is willing to defer to that. Mm-hmm. Like, but at some point, it tips too far and his inherent male authority is being disintegrated and then he just kind of goes bananas. But up, up until that point, it's a wonderful kind of seesaw balance between the two of them. I also really like the structure of the entire story. The first episode is this total procedural mystery. The doctor lands somewhere and he has no idea other than how far off in time he is, but he has no idea where, what's going on, and they actually go around together, he and Sarah Jane, and investigate and we as the viewers have seen this little sneak peek at what's going on uh, before we cut to the doctor landing, but we don't know either. So it's it's really a really nice episode. And then once they figure out what's going on, they have an episode of sort of establishing its antimatter, and then we have this whole back half that all takes place on the ship as a negotiation process, and then they plunk that last little bit at the end. Episode four is uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So it just keeps kind of moving around what the conflicts are and so I, I felt constantly engaged by it. Well, it's wonderful and all the little details are good. Sarah is very good, for example. She she kind of fails a little bit in episodes three and four as she becomes just a normal, useless companion, but in the first couple ones, she's, she's good. She's uh, t- bantering with the doctor. Mm-hmm. She goes to the TARDIS to get the Spectra mixer without needing to be told what it looks like. She recognizes that the magnetic windows aren't operating, and she's active about the whole thing. And then, yes, as the usual Doctor Who writing process happens, she's sidelined. <laughs> yeah, watching this episode, there are a number of spots where I really felt like I was watching improvised moments. Uh, between Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen. And, and there were also a couple moments that stuck out where I thought that's Robert Holmes added that as the script editor. Uh, like when the two crew members are com- have to carry yeah. out the antimatter and kind of complaining, like, uh, carry <laughs> things in, carry things out. It didn't really match the style of the other dialogue. And I mean, Robert Holmes added that. Yeah. He had to. You will point out Michael Wisher, who plays Morelli, is mm-hmm. all over these first seasons of Doctor Who. He was Davros just a few episodes yeah. ago. Yeah, he was uh, in Terror of the Autons, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, no, he's yeah, he's just everywhere. Oh, it's this, just this guy. This is he's a really all. small part for him, actually. I yeah, wonder really, if someone got sick at the last minute I and they were just like, "Hey, get Michael Wisher in here." <laughs> Uh, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole because I was thinking, oh, those space people's outfits look a lot like 2000 AD comics from this era. But then I dug into it, and no, it's a few years too early for 2000 AD. So I have to assume that it's stories like this Doctor Who story and the sci-fi movies that influenced this one that then influenced the artists on yeah. 2000 AD that the, the, uh, write, judge, uh, draw, judge, drag. Right, yeah, the, the, yeah. the Morestrian costumes really, to me, they kind of evoke Sh- the costumes of, of Forbidden Planet. Shoulder pads yeah, and, the, and the piping. The costumes are by Andrew Rose. I looked that up. So I assume that, 
he is an underserved person when yeah. we, when we look at uh, 20th century uh, sci-fi uh, design. Yeah, and David Maloney is just such a good director. There's so many great shots that he uses here. Um, this is a very small detail, but it's honestly one of my favorite things, uh, and it's the kind of things that, that he seems to pay a lot of attention to. I'm gonna forget the exact context, but it's in one of the later episodes where the main crew members and the doctor they're all looking out the view screen something important is going on and then they cut to a wider shot and all the rest of the crew members run up because they're like something interesting is going on they've been directed to all gather around and go what the hell's going on and that's just <laughs> such a small detail that usually in doctor who it's it's really just you know the direction is just like well get the main characters who are talking in the shot Let's not add a lot of color to it yeah. uh, with character moments, but everyone gathers around to see what the hell's going on. And the um, ocular tracker, is that the, what it's called? Uh, yes, it's the oculoid tracker. Yes. It's a little wobbly, but it's got a lot of character. <laughs> it really does. It's got like Sauron's evil eye in there. Yes. <laughs> I, I like the, it's kind of Millennium Falcony. <laughs> You're gonna have to cloister bell that. Uh, you know, it, it looks cheap because it's part of a cheap culture that yeah. can't keep it up. Yeah. Um, and 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 what is it with these with these humans? Thirty thousand years in the future, they're still looking. It's so discouraging. <laughs> they're a sophisticated spacefaring race, and they're still looking for mineral fuels instead of like <laughs> solar engineering or something like that. And, if, I, and, my, and my, like my, Kelvin said, yeah, yeah, the doctor just like, oh, offhandedly, why did you derive energy from the kinetic force of planetary movement? Holy crap! <laughs> Let's I, try that. I, my little head cannon for this is that, okay, thirty-five thousand years in the future. How many times has human civilization probably risen and fallen in that time frame? So I, you know, it's like humans get farther and farther out into space, but like they have like a societal collapse of some kind and rebuild themselves. And so like now, you know, thirty-five thousand years later, they're now like on near the edge of the universe. And it can't really be a significant moment in human yeah. history or else the doctor shouldn't be able to just go, uh, here's another alternate source of energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this Morestrian uh, branch of humanity is just some... Bunch of jerks. Super isolated <laughs> from the technological advances of everywhere else. Well, final thoughts on this one, guys? It's really good, and you should watch it. God damn Hugely it. underrated. I haven't watched this in many years. It never gets I've talked about really much, and I don't it. know why. Vanderbilt's equation of knowledge is quite wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for our next round, Wonderful A Functionalism, we are pleased to have back with us two of our former guests. Jeff Tidball, our friend from the previous episode, has joined us for a group interview with our old friend, Sizzix, the Ice Warrior. Thank you, Sizzix, for joining us today. Thank you. It is great to be back. Ice Warriors represent. <laughs> now... You're here, of course, uh, because we've learned recently that the Ice Warriors are going to be a villain, or a group of villains. I object to your ins 
insinuation. Uh, I do apologize. I, I am evolving. I'm trying to be an ally. But uh, <laughs> guest stars, let's say, in Peter Capaldi's final season, uh, season 10 of Doctor Who next year. We, uh, that's about all we know. Do you have any special insight into the Ice Warrior appearance in season 10, Sizzix? I predict it will be a metaphor for Brexit. Only in this case, it will be more of a Mars-it. A Mars-it? Do you think that the storyline will be about Mars leaving the United Federation of Planets? We can call it that. <laughs> but yes, we think that the that Mars will secede and form a new ice warrior. That sounds procedurally complicated. Do you think it will be? We leave the details to the citizenry. <laughs> we just make the pronouncements. Do you know, uh, will the ice warriors be taking part in Peter Capaldi's regeneration? Are... are Ice Warriors going to be the ones who finally uh, get a chance to off the Doctor this time? Sure. <laughs> if you could kill the Doctor, how, how would you do it as, as a great and honorable Ice Warrior? Prolonged exposure to the elements. We would just take him to, say, Antarctica and watch. Because for us, Antarctica would be like the beach. So are you saying that you would like to take Peter Capaldi to the beach? A frozen, lifeless beach. Still because what is life? It's a beach. Hey. <laughs> I will be here all night. Try the feel. Well, Sussex, I'm trying to get a hand. Comedy is not too evolved on Mars, but that slew them at Mons Olympus. Who are, who are some of your comedy heroes, then? Harvey Corman. Well, Sussex, I, I, I have to admit that I'm, I'm, I'm finding it a little difficult to get a handle on your tone. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether you're uh, an old Catskill-style uh, comedian or whether you're a murderous monster who wants to kill the doctor. Uh, could you give us some clarity on that? You act as if these concepts are mutually exclusive. I knew some Catskills comedians back in the 50s. A more cutthroat bunch of bastards you have never met in your life. And I have fought Santarins, Daleks, and the occasional Movellan. So it's a relatively elastic Venn diagram. Yeah, I would say so. I have to say you look pretty good for your age, Sizzix. Oh, thank you. I've been doing yoga. Do you have a favorite pose? The lonely iceberg. I hear that's very deep. It's mostly submerged. It's mostly submerged. <laughs> Yoga is quite a challenge for the ice warrior, as it involves flexibility. 
I don't know, you seemed pretty fluid in that episode with uh, Davos Seaworth, the Mark Gatiss Cold War episode from a few years ago. Once you shuck off that external armor, or maybe I'm being too personal. <laughs> you saw us without our armor on? Did that go out on the web? Did you, did you text that to people? Jeez, Louise. We did text it. It's called an ice pick is when you send pictures of a naked ice warrior. <laughs> oh, yes. That is a popular app. Well, Sizzix, obviously Chris Chibnall is taking over the show, and there's oh, yeah. going to be a new doctor at some point. Mm. Uh, what are your hopes for the future of Doctor Who? Why not have a spinoff of Ice Warriors? Do you think there's a lot of inherent drama in Ice Warrior society? There's a lot of suspense. <laughs> there is a lot of suspense. Because it takes us a good 20 minutes to express one single thought. It's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You quiver with anticipation. Thank you for stepping on my joke. <laughs> well, there's been a lot of talk uh, about who will be the next Doctor and who they will cast. Uh, there's been discussion, obviously, uh, as there was last time, of uh, a female Doctor looking at uh, actors of, of color for the role. How do you feel about uh, maybe the Doctor even being a totally different species? Could the Doctor be an ice warrior? I would give that two pincers up. Represent, Sizzix. Yo. All right, and for our fifth and final round, Arcs of Infinity, we will be continuing our discussion of the Doom Coalition Big Finish 8 Doctor audio box sets. And we are now up to Doom Coalition Volume 3, which came out a couple months ago. We're a little behind. Uh, this one has four stories, really arguably three stories, because in the center of it, uh, it's really a two-part story. It has Absent Friends by John Dorney, which just recently uh, won the BBC Audio Drama Awards Best Online-Only category. It might have been the only audio <laughs> in that category. I don't know. Um, then The Eighth Piece by Matt Fitton. The Doomsday Chronometer, also by Matt Fitton, and those are both like part one and part two of a single story and the crucible of souls by john dorney once again so guys uh what do you think of this box set this is the best doom coalition box set so far i would agree i also agree whoa okay that's the end of this round. <laughs> thank you for joining us we've no, been it, i'm pat it, it 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 really did seem to have a a definite jump up in quality but i have noticed this this pattern with all the box sets um the war doctor ones and 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 these as well so they always start off with like a really quiet small human scale kind of story and then they escalate to Total destruction of the universe, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and I've kind of come to the conclusion maybe you can't do something that epic in audio very well, but this time around and in, in Doom, Doom Coalition Three here they they don't make it the most cataclysmically dire thing. I mean, it's big. It's the end of all time. Yeah, it's kind of big. 
<laughs> well, let's back up a second and uh, mention the small story, Absent Friends. Yeah. I do think it's a pretty good story. It's a good one, yeah. What I like about it is it's s- small scale but has huge emotional impact for mm-hmm. the characters. And we just picked up the new companion, Helen, at the beginning of this box set series. And I feel like this is the first story where we really get to see inside her life a little Mm -hmm. bit more. Maybe I'm alone in this, but I found it really emotionally raw. And I was really surprised how much time they spent on Helen's story. (laughs) Pat just pointed at his notes in which he said emotionally raw as well. So we are, we are on the same page here. Well, yeah. I mean, well, like when she visits her, is it her uncle? Well, her brother, her brother, brother. pretending to be her. Oh God. Because she is pretending to be her own daughter. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I agree. Uh, Absent Friends is is very close to the bone. It's uh, it's a small scale story, uh, emotionally raw, as you said. I I think very sentimental, uh, but it worked for me. I I didn't resent it. I didn't think that it was unearned because mm-hmm. the entire thing was about failed relationships or loss. Helen, who visits her brother, she pretends to be her own daughter uh, but she does that because uh, it's a consequence of getting involved in these dubious adventures with the doctor and then running off and and pretending that your your consequences of your previous life don't exist and, and there's like the weird thing about it being set in the recent past when cell phones are a new thing that, that, that somehow that adds to it just the fact that it's Within your memory, yeah, it's there's a yeah. new, there's a new method of communication, yeah, and somehow that is now you can communicate with your dead loved ones, mm-hmm. and that that's horrible. It's <laughs> horrible. <laughs> also, it's accidental. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that that's what I liked about Absent mm-hmm. Friends. It's just a, an occurrence that happens because the doomsday chronometer bit uh, is there. And so just because it's warping time, we're talking to our dead parents or... Dead children. Yeah. That would be enough for any good novel. Yeah. So because there's no alien invasion, there's no evil bad guy, it really allows the story to take its time and really delve into the companion's... And the doctor's sort of inability to connect to them. And that is all really interesting. And there's almost a a little bit of a satire, or at least plays on the expectations you might have from watching the new series. Because the early days of cell phones and aliens invading to start a new cell phone company just sounds like a Russell T. Davies plot. It really does. And so it really plays on that. I bought it all the way up until the reveal that it was just a coincidence. Yeah, just like like well, clearly he's got to be some alien. He's he's too neat looking. He's too polished. He's too like, well groomed. Oh, no. He's too well groomed. Oh no, he's just a salesman. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. I thought it was very funny too. Uh, let me dig a little deeper into it because it's a type of story that I don't always love, and it's one that's kind of common to long-running serial narratives, especially in recent years. It's the kind that leads you to believe that it's going to be a very ordinary, cliched sort of story, and then pulls a switcheroo. So I don't know if you guys watched Lost. 
Yes. Uh, but do you remember the end of season three I, or maybe four? I don't remember. Uh, we get an episode or two where there's a very ordinary flashback where Jack is acting like a bearded lunatic. Yes, and I think like, it's series burr, burr, four. Burr, burr, burr. Uh, and it turns out it's not actually a flashback, but it's a flash forward to a time when they're not – have actually mm-hmm. gotten off the island. And that's super cool. Yes. <laughs> it was a great surprise, and we were all like, oh, wow, that's great. Uh, but if you think about it, it works because the flash forwards were very carefully constructed to be as bland as possible and to convey no meaningful information at all. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're deliberately badly written in order to lower your expectations and then surprise you. So this audio was, as much as I liked it, a little bit like that. It was designed to focus your attention on the cell phone company and say it's going to be the Nestine, it's going to be some kind of nonsense like that. And then the effect is that it's something different. I, I guess I forgave even a little of the hokiness of the setup because they, they started the calls from your dead relative story early enough that you had some real kind of darkness running alongside that storyline. And so that storyline of the doctor infiltrating the cell phone headquarters was a sort of like comedy relief that was kind of needed. The the awkward, terrible conversation between Helen and her brother, you wanted something to break that up because it felt very real. That was hard. Yeah, yeah that, that's an unusually difficult conversation. Yeah, for I, I, I would go so far as to say it is, I, I, there's probably something I'm not thinking of, but one of the most like realistic attempts at the consequences of time travel that I've, I've seen in the show. Yeah, I also like Monsieur Superville is French. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of great jokes in there. It's a really well-written script. So the next two-parter, not to go into great detail, um, really plays a lot on the new series. It felt like a a Moffat audio Mm -hmm. to me, because there's so many timelines going on. But to its strength, as we've mentioned a lot in this podcast, as we've talked about audios, we figured out that one of the things for me that makes them engaging is that there is a mystery at the core. So you're following along with the story and you're unraveling the puzzle. And this two-parter had it made your brain hurt trying to figure out all the different puzzle pieces. And it was about puzzle pieces, about a race of aliens who like to figure out puzzles. So I found it really engaging on that level. Yeah, at the end of the eighth piece, there was a triple or maybe quadruple cliffhanger where <laughs> everyone we care about was in danger. I thought that was that was pretty bold. Yeah, across three different timelines. Yeah, um, mostly what I took away from this was uh, River is a Nun, which I'm okay with. I found it entertaining. I am because okay with, that's super hot. I'm okay with River is a Nun, but it was just sort of like, oh, they show up to London just before the Blitz to get this one thing, and then River wrecks the priceless stained glass window, and it's like, well, it's going to get bombed in like five minutes, sweetie, so let's go. And, and it's like there's no clue to like, how River knew to go there or whatever, you know, she just, it's just like this weird boom, 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 River shows up, does something wacky and awesome and then leaves. And like, there's no, (laughs) 
You don't know how and why she's doing it. There were clues in the first paintings they looked at. They were the Da Vinci paintings Mm -hmm. that told them where to go throughout time. It is admittedly a very convoluted. That's why I thought Moffat had seemed inspired by those Matt Smith era episodes. Mm -hmm. River Song felt really improbably adept. Yeah. Uh, um, I love the psychic wimple, though. (laughs) The psychic wimple was... My first reaction was like, oh, come on. And then, but then I'm like, no, no, psychic whipple. Yeah. I actually think it's, <laughs> it's really a brilliant way to solve the problem for the listeners. Like, yeah. we want to see the Eighth Doctor interact with River Song, but we can't. But because it's audio yeah. and you say psychic whimple, we're not looking at what. The doctor's and, and looking like at. The doctor thinks she looks like like Rita, Rita Hayworth, Hayworth who taught him the cha cha. Orson was so irritated. <laughs> Within the narrative, the Eighth Doctor is not seeing River Song, but as the listeners, we are hearing River Song's voice interacting with the Eighth Doctor. Yeah, I did. She doesn't alter her personality at all, so we get all the satisfaction of seeing the, these guys meet and interact, uh, and they just kind of sweep the narrative implications under the rug. Yeah. And then the final story does a riff on modern undead in a really satisfying way, I think. I found it funny, at least. It's better than modern undead did it. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, because they, the companions see a Time Lord die and regenerate in the TARDIS. And so they assume, that's the Doctor. He is regenerating. With mm-hmm. better reason than I think Tegan yeah. and uh, Tegan and those guys did. The other reason it's a one-up from Modern Undead is we, as the viewers, have no idea exactly who Modern is, so we don't know what the stakes are. We, as the listeners in this audio, have realized, holy crap, that's the eleven. So the stakes are higher. We know that. Oh, they're in a lot of trouble. If oh they my think god! It's the, it's the eleven. The, the it's eleven generating from his eighth to his ninth <laughs> life, and. Oh my God, he's great. He is. I loved him as a totally bananas evil doctor. Yeah, I, yeah, I liked Eleven a lot more this time, partly because (laughs) it was a comparatively more coherent portrayal of him. It wasn't like eighteen different, well, eighteen, eleven different voices (laughs) going off, and you don't know which one is. This guy's obsession with stuff killed me. Every line where he's like, "Wait, (laughs) this is all my stuff." I can have this stuff. It's just great performance. Oh, it's wonderful. And he's I, trying to, and he's he's like fighting down the voices of his other lives, and because he just kind of wants to be selfish in this one. This is the first box set where I am really. I can't wait for the next one. It, it really much- ended on a hell of a cliffhanger. Yeah, I really dug it. Uh, so. First, of course, I dug the fact that obviously Matt Fitton had just read Wolf Hall or probably watched Wolf Hall because, hey, it's Thomas Cromwell. Oh, yes. That's a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah we haven't I even talked, to, talked about Cromwell. him, but yeah, a very sinister figure in English history is now a pseudo companion in Doctor <laughs> Who. But yeah, by the time we got to Crucible of Souls, the fourth story, uh, okay, I was a little disappointed that it turned out that Patrick was a traitor because I had sort of felt that from the very first episode. Hmm, this is a guy who's going to turn out to be a traitor. And then... Here's what elevated it for me. I was with you. I felt the same thing. I was like, oh, another Time Lord traitor. But the one redeeming part of it is how he hasn't gone mad. Yeah. Throughout it all, he's this very cold, You're right. He has, a good, he has a good reason to yep. do this. And he continues. He's He's not maniacal about it. He's not cackling with laughter. It's just like... Look, I figured this out. 
this makes the most sense. Can we all just calm down here? Because his plot is, correct me if I'm wrong, he's killing all of future time to prevent Gallifrey from being destroyed? Is that what it is? Yeah, and ultimately his idea is that it's only Gallifrey that exists because every single version of the timeline he looks at, whether it be the BBC books, <laughs> whether it be the new series, whether it be the comic books, Gallifrey ends up destroyed. There's no compassion, but it's rational. Like, that's the only solution. I'm a Time Lord. It's our job to guard the universe, even if it means <laughs> no universe. Yeah, it's it's kind of a foreshadowing of the Time War. Final thoughts on Doom Coalition 3? I would say it's overall the best box that we've listened to so far. Not just Doom Coalition-wise, but I think War Doctor-wise as well. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree. Uh, I mean, part of it, in all fairness, it's as good as it is because it does build on on the two lesser box sets. Yeah, I, <laughs> I feel like it's obviously working toward the, the Legion of Doom, the Secret Society of Supervillains, but this didn't just build it. Mm-hmm. It advanced the, the stakes mm-hmm. quite a bit. So I'm I'm looking forward to the the conclusion. Well, that's our podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening and join us next time when we will be discussing volume 4 of the War Doctor Big Finish audios Kaboom. and in the randomizer. What is it? The Smugglers. <laughs> yes, that's correct. The penultimate episode of The First Doctor, all of which are missing. Missing? Yes. And it's uh, known to be a fantastic episode. Terrific. Ter- <laughs> one of the fans. best. One of the most <laughs> famous of all Doctor Who episodes. Oh, God. Uh, directed by Julia Smith and written by Brian Hales. A four-episode uh, adventure from 1966. Uh, and it's called The Smugglers. I, I literally, you said The Smugglers, and I'm like, are, are you making a joke? There's no Doctor Who name. Oh, wait, there is a Doctor Who named the Smugglers. Oh, I, uh, I am not making a joke. I am legit excited about this because I know nothing about the Smugglers. That's that's it's, it. It might be I'm, the least known it's Doctor got, Who it's story. It's got ben, ben and Polly and the First Doctor. You guys, Ben and Polly and the First Doctor, and that's it. I mean, come on. Well, listeners, you've been warned. Uh, <laughs> that is our next episode um, If you enjoyed this episode Or if you didn't like this one But enjoyed previous episodes <laughs> Please go to iTunes And write us a review Reviews do help We have been reluctant to ask for reviews But we've reached the point Where we're just saying Hey, <laughs> review our podcast for You're us You're just sad please. Now, Josh <laughs> Please uh, Thank you so much for listening Until next time I'm Joshua. I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. And we're saying Get off my world! Is there some way I can apologize? I was in the kitchen mixing up the medicine. (laughs) (laughs) To poor Aldous Hodges because I got his name totally f***ing wrong? 
Oh, oh well. If he's listening to this, right. I'm sorry, Aldous Hodges. <laughs> Ready, Calvin? Doom Coalition. Yeah, mother. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ready.